Welcome to Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents, where devastated, crumbled, fractured people come to learn maybe, just maybe, we're all a little bit damaged. Someone once told me it's safe to assume 50% of the people I meet are struggling and feel wounded in some way. I would venture to say it's closer to 100%. Every one of us is either currently struggling or has struggled with something that made us feel less than, like we aren't good enough. We aren't capable. We are relatively damaged. And that's what we're here to talk about. In my ongoing investigation of the damaged self, I want to better understand how others view their own challenges. Maybe it's not so much about the damage. Maybe it's about our perception and how we deal with it. There is a deep commitment to becoming who we are meant to be. How do you do that? How do you find balance after a damaging experience? My hero is the damaged person, the one who faces seemingly insurmountable odds to come out on the other side whole. Those who stare directly into the face of adversity with unyielding persistence to discover their purpose. These are the people who inspire me to be more fully me, not in spite of my trials, but because of them. Let's hear from another hero. Today's topic includes sensitive material which may not be appropriate for children. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as advice. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Today we're going to talk with Larnie Mulvey. She has many roles in her life, sister, wife, power lifter, and more. We talk about how her identity crisis started when she was five, moved to the United States and had to put on shoes for the first time, and learn how to be Asian in America. Let's talk. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Welcome, Larnie, to Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. It's great to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I was really happy before we started the recording. I got your name right on the first try. (laughs) Yes, you did. And it's funny because there's like so many different variations of my name, but you got it. You got it. What are some of the other variations? I'm Filipino and really, okay, so my name is spelled L-A-A-R-N-I. The two A's right there used to give people a hiccup because really my name is pronounced La'arni. So um, I didn't actually get it right the way it was meant to be, right. but I got it the way you but, you, but you got it, you got it. But yeah, that it's like part of like the identity of who I was back in the day. You know, you fight for your name. Your name is who you are. And growing from the, coming from the Philippines to the States and becoming Asian in America, those two A's were not very helpful. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Asian in America. I'm seeing yeah. the AA right there. Very interesting. Well, so you came on here to talk about your biggest struggle. Tell us what happened and when it started and all that. Yeah, just tell us that story. Yeah, so my story of personal struggle really took place when I moved from the Philippines to the U.S. And in the Philippines, that's where I was... I'm a free spirit in general. It's been in me my whole life. So, you know, running around with no shoes in shorts, because, you know, it's a tropical climate. Moving to the States 
And the first thing that I really experienced as someone coming here, my grandparents picked us up from the airport, my, myself and my family, and my grandparents gave me shoes. It was the first time I had to put something binding on my feet. So first thought in my head was like, what are these? And you know how you put like those little booties on a dog and they walk kind of funky? That's yes. how I felt. That's how I felt. I'm laughing hard because we did that. Okay, we did that. We have chihuahuas. We did that. <laughs> you know, the front leg goes way up and then the back leg goes way up and they're walking like all teetery. Yeah. They're teeter tottering like and they just cannot find their balance. It was the funniest thing ever. That's how I felt. I felt like I was... Like, oh my God, what are, what are these? And then I had to learn how to tie shoes. So like the shoes that were given to me were the Velcro, like the Velcro strap ones. But like when I felt that, like that first thing was like the first sign of like my conformity, you know, being that Asian girl in America. I mean, I'm 44. So this was like back in the eighties and there wasn't much for me to like know about when it came to figuring out who I was because now is like a transition from being Filipino to being Asian American to being Filipino American. And like those standards, that's when it all started was when I put those shoes on and then the clash of my cultural standards versus American standards. And then where did I fall? You know, where did I fall? How did I find out who I was? So at five, you're already confused and you could identify with that at five what was that feeling like inside of you it was confusing it was like that excitement confusing because I'm in a new place and new experiences I was like oh yeah cool it's America but then I started realizing all the like don't do that you can't do that you're only like four foot you can't do that it was like all these no's started coming at me. So you didn't get that in the Philippines? No, because it was like in the Philippines, we had like my sister and I had like, like nannies that, you know, they played with us. We, you know, you just go outside your door and play and be free spirit, you know, like climb the trees, everything. When I came here and I, I, we came straight to Chicago, the Chicagoland area. And it was like, you can't go out in the front yard. You're not supposed to, you can't cross the street. You're not supposed to. You have to ask to go to the backyard. It was like those, those like troubling thing, you know, it's like all these lines were drawn so quickly from the transition that it like confused me. Like I was confused because I'm like, well, I used to be able to do that. Why can't I do that now? And it was, it was disheartening. Yeah. And it sounds like when you were in the Philippines, create you could go outside and investigate and be curious curiosity was really important so then you came here and there's rules and guidelines and you kind of have to live inside this box yes yes that box there drove me to a lot of anger you know a lot of resentment a lot of bitterness growing up because it's like I would see okay so we didn't really have television in the Philippines. I mean, we did, but I don't really recall like seeing a lot of stuff on TV. But now in the States, we're inside more or I'm inside more. And what's our pastime? Watch TV. 
what do I see on TV in the 80s? These shows that, sh- you know, like the, the slender blonde daughter, the, the, uh, the family that like is so happy and loving and good job, buddy, you know, like those kinds of things. <laughs> You're reminding me of Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> I just <laughs> aged myself. <laughs> I mean, it's like that those kinds of programs are the ones that I grew up with. And I didn't see myself in any of them. But then I started comparing myself to them. Okay. I started comparing my life to them. Why can't I have a dog? <laughs> Why can't I do this? Well, how come they look like that? And I don't look like that. And it was really, I mean, because every show was like almost the same, different title, but it was the same visual look that I kept seeing all the time. So did you want to like physically change yourself yeah. somehow? Yes. And we were talking, we were talking before we were like doing this, we're like, we're talking about my name and how I fought for my name. You know, the two A's in my name, there's a, supposed to be like a little pause there. It's supposed to be Larney, but the first time I introduced myself at a school, they never heard the LA part. They always heard the end part. And that was, you know, like Sesame Street was really popular. And so like the Bert and Ernie skits were there. So they would always call me Bert and Ernie. Oh, wow. So I would be like right now you see my, my eyebrows are totally like beautiful in shape. I yeah. mean, I had the, I had the unibrow call me Ernie all the time or Bert and Ernie. And Little so stinkers, they're so mean. <laughs> so what is my first experience getting bullied about my name? Oh, wow. Your first experience in the Well, no, the very first one was getting shoes. But your yeah. first experience with other kids, it sounds like, was the name. Yes, was the name. So, and this is now, were you in a school that had a good mix of people or of different? Uh, was it diverse or were you in a school, school that was not diverse? It was a they called it a magnet school. And I don't know if they have it. I don't even know if they have them still. A magnet school is like there was no boundaries. Like if you can get bust in, you were you were able to come to this school. And, you know, it was it was very interesting to be able to like I see the diversity, which is the first thing that I really did experience diversity in school because you know coming from the Philippines I we all looked alike but then now going to an American school it was like a ton of different people which is cool to me but so you I, found it exciting it wasn't was it it wasn't weird it was it wasn't weird like I was like cool you know yeah. people hey whatever <laughs> but it was just my name got it it was it was just so difficult to fight for my name and be like it's two A's it's Larney you know and it's just like eventually now everybody calls me just everybody calls me Larney and it's that that fight for my name that is like I give up just call me Larney so would you prefer if if people called you Larney La did I say that right now yeah yeah okay you know I haven't heard it said that way in such a long time that I I I don't have a preference got it and I don't I, I don't correct anyone unless they really butcher my name. Okay. That's, that's a totally different story, but like, really it's like I've transitioned right. the Larney to Larney, but like my identity is to Larney, but it's right. a, it's like a different level of my identity. So okay. Ex- explain that to me because I, I really don't understand. <laughs> so, okay. So Larney is the, the shy 
the shy girl who really wanted to bust out to who really, you know, who she was, who she wanted to be. And it really, that Laarni brings back like days of being really angry, being really unknowing of who she was, being depressed, being suicidal. And it's almost like once I transitioned my name to Larney, it was, it was like at a different level of my life where I wanted to build a different me. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And the different me doesn't mean like I let go of Larney. Like I, it's, I've used those lessons from back in the day to build who I am now. So that's why I don't let go of her. I keep her alongside with me, but I don't let go of her. Right. Now I did hear you say at some point you were suicidal. Yeah. Was that also tied into this identity? I'm going to call it a crisis. Yes. Yes. Oh no. Yes. Yes. It was totally an identity crisis because, and this was like in my like teenage years. So this lasted many, 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 many years. Okay. Okay. When we moved to one of the suburbs in the Chicagoland area, I tried to carry my name over and I, I did my best, did whatever. It's Larny, Larny, Larny. But then when I got in my teenage years, you know, those are the teenage angst years. That's when we're like looking, we're really like searching for ourselves. But I'm like, I've been searching for myself since I got here. Right. Because who's, whose life was I living? I was living my parents' life that I, they wanted me to be. I was living the American standard of you're Asian. Don't say, don't, don't, don't ruffle too many feathers. You're small. So let's keep you small. Let's make sure that you don't have a voice. And you know, that, that saying, you know, you keep baby in a corner. I was in the corner. Well, and I'm thinking maybe your parents or grandparents or whoever's teaching you this, or even if it's just the world, maybe it was partly the world, but I'm thinking the be quiet and other things like that came from your parents. And I'm thinking maybe they were thinking this is what's going to help you stay safe. I I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Yeah. So that's like the protective aspect of parents want to protect their kids. And when, when we moved here, you know, my parents needed to find jobs. And so they, you know, went their ways in the morning and I went to school, but keeping me inside was their protective way. And I, and I am so grateful for that because honestly, like if they didn't protect me in that manner, I would, I would probably have been in front of a car somewhere because I'm like running all over the place. Who knows? But you know, that identity part, that identity crisis did, I mean, it found me through high school, but it hit me really hard. So what's happening at this time in high school when you're feeling like you're having those suicidal thoughts and things like that, what's going on? So I've always had like a lot of energy and I, this is the time, like I was seeing a lot more athletics on TV. Like I was really into like tennis and watching them on TV. And I was like, you know what? I want to be an athlete so bad. And I, you know, as a kid, you know, I was running around. I knew I was an athlete when I was younger and I really wanted to be an athlete in my teenage. I wanted to play sports and I wasn't allowed to. Yeah. Protective, the protective side of my family. And also like in the, in the Philippines, it's like girls in sports wasn't something, it wasn't something supported or it wasn't something like, it wasn't something like that was important. Well, academics was number one. 
Right. But also I think that women were just really starting to break out into this, this stuff starting 60s, 70s, 80s, early 90s, I think is when you were probably in high school, right? Yeah. So yeah. that would have been a really new concept, especially since you only came at five mm-hmm. when gender, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, where the, where the gender uh, roles are so defined by what a man does and what a woman woman does. Okay. Okay. Yes. So there wasn't much that I saw in in athletics, but I wanted to be an athlete so bad. So in high school, you know, that was where everybody went to high school. Everybody went to play sports in high school and that's what I saw on TV. So that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to go to school and play like some kind of sport. It didn't matter to you which one. No, I wanted to try them all. Okay. Awesome. (laughs) And I tried out for the dance team and, you know, the protective aspect of my parents, especially my dad, he found out that I went to go try out for the dance team and he came to the school and took me out of the tryout. Oh, were you so embarrassed? (laughs) I was so, I was like, okay. All right. Do you remember your thought in that moment of were you so, I'm sorry, I cut you off. I just would have been so mad at dad. Oh my gosh. That's where that underlying anger and bitterness comes from. Because I was like, dad, this is what I wanted to do. Like, I want to do this. And he like did not approve. (laughs) He like was like, no, you are not doing this. And then after that experience, I didn't try out for anything. Oh man, I did because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make sure my dad still loved me, even though I was like still rebellious at t- that time. Like I just wanted to make sure he's, he loved me. And so I didn't do anything to make him like, okay, <laughs> right. Let me see if I get this right. In order to be true to yourself, you were going to, you had, dad was going to be mad. And if dad was mad, then your belief at that time was that he didn't love you for the simple reason that he was mad. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, no, right? We don't know that dad would have withdrawn his love. I don't know. I don't know your dad. Yeah, but. My, my dad, I mean, he, I knew he loved me, but I knew he was protective of me. And our, our heads always clashed. Even when I was at that time, our heads always clashed and I wanted to do it, but I respected my father and I didn't do it. And so anything that I, that I made, maybe not made him mad, but I just didn't want him to lose his daughter that he used to tell, he used to tell my sister and I, like, I didn't raise weak children. And to me, in my mind, disrespecting my father was like uh, a weakness in in my mind, in my mind, like you, you should be respectful to your father and everything. And I felt like whenever I rebelled, that was the disrespecting of him and our culture. And as much as like, I wanted to do this, but I'm a teenager. I need to be respectful to my, my family. So it was like, okay, I'm going to compromise right now in my teenage years, but did it, but deep down, I, it, it, not being able to express myself like that in like movement athletics or something like that, that, that really was like the depressed part. That was my depressed part. That was so maybe, maybe you felt crushed. Yeah. Like it was, it's like, I was so disappointed that I couldn't be like everybody else. 
Like everybody was like doing stuff with their friends and going out. And I couldn't do that. That, that free spirit in me was like, like squishing me down, like squish, squish, squish. And that's where like all that anger and those, those suicidal thoughts, I used to punch things so hard. I'd like bust walls in my door. I would kick the couch so hard that I would break the back. Oh, no. oh yeah. I, w- I was, you know, and that's like, like, that's the reason why I kind of knew what my strength was because it was like, if I can punch, if I could punch a hole, you know, like that. And it, it was, it was like, I used to cut myself a lot on my hands and my, and my forearms, you know, that's how my outlet of like, of like that, uh, that like oppressed feeling that was like my outlet at that time. Can I ask you a question about that? So the cutting, did it, did it, so it seems like with, with everything else that was going on, you, you had no sense of power. So I'm thinking maybe the cutting gave you like, I have control over this, or uh, I've also heard it numbs the feeling. I don't know. Like I, you know, when I look back and, and understand the cutting part that I did, it was like an impulsive reaction to be, to being, not being able to do something. And it was less, and this is going to sound like maybe indifferent to some people, but it was less damaging than putting a hole in the wall. Okay. And I think though, everybody probably has different experiences with those that do cut, there's different reasons behind it. I just wanted to better understand what was going on for you. Yeah, sure. It was like my impulsive outlet to, do that quick cut and be like, that's your reminder, Larnie. That is your reminder to, to don't do that. Like it was like, don't do that because you're going to ruffle those feathers. So almost like a punishment to yourself. It's, it was part of that part of that, like, you know, like the punishment, but also like, you know, this is what you can do maybe, maybe people will see it and see how upset you are and they'll ask, you know, there was just, it was just so many different factors for me cutting and it w- they weren't deep cuts or anything, but it was, it was enough. It was mm-hmm. enough that once my sister saw it, she's like, you better stop cutting yourself. That was enough for me to stop doing it. Nice. Because somebody noticed. Yeah. And somebody I love noticed that I think that's why my sister and I are so close. We're, you know, we're each other's rock, but it was like for her to notice it, it was like, Oh, okay. People are going to start noticing learning. Don't do that. It was like the whole don't do that. I'm wondering though, too, if it was also, you know, not that it was just don't do it, but if it was also someone sees me and recognizes me, somebody's going to see me. Well, not just, no, I mean, like from your sister's perspective, she sees me, what's inside of me and she loves me and yep. cares about me. I think it goes that to that deep. Yeah. And that's why my sister and I are like extremely close and she knows who I am. She's like the one person who hundred percent, hundred and ten percent knows who I am. And that's why I love her for it because it's, she's. Like my, both of my parents are deceased now, but like, like she, she and I were so close and she'll know she, she knows my drive and she knows things that I've gone through. So that's why it's like, when she saw that, she's like, don't, don't you stop. You better stop doing that. That's awesome. I think you're so lucky to have someone that cares for you so much that, that could say it in a way that you really got that. So 
My question though, with the suicidal stuff, did that come, was that with the cutting or was that something later or was it just all jumbled together? That was all jumbled, jumbled together throughout my teenage years. And it, you know, like those suicidal thoughts came back a little bit in my, in like my twenties, you know, there was that struggle again with trying to figure out who I was, where I wanted to be after high school. And it was, you know, again, living, living the life my parents wanted me to live. And I, oh, you know, that lovely question. So what do you want to go to school for after high school? Like, I don't know. I'm like, what, 16, 17 years old. I have no idea. And uh, I don't know if you know the stereotype of like the Filipinos for the women, like, why don't you go to nursing school? It's like, I don't want to be a nurse. (laughs) Okay. So hold on real quick. So the cutting stopped in high school. Did things get better or did they just kind of, did you just kind of plug along if you will? And and then plug along. Just keep living. So you didn't really, right. So you didn't really solve the, whatever it was happening inside of you. No. Okay. So then you, so then you get into your twenties and So you get into your twenties and you've got this college thing happening and all of a sudden it's like, again, these feelings come up for you. Oh yeah. Okay. So tell us maybe a situation or what happened and all that. Oh dear. (laughs) This is like a great situation because still, you know, still living my parents, my parents' expectations, minus the nursing school. So like it was all these, Hey, why don't you try this? Because that's going to be a popular industry like that. Got it. Plug in, drop in my first relationship with a guy. Oh, now this is getting interesting. <laughs> first relationship with a guy. And I, it's like, I don't really count like my relationships, like in high school and stuff like that, because those were, to me, those were like the superficial, oh, he's cute kind of things. But this relationship with a gentleman and he was a great guy, but I, the first time I touched a weight, uh, especially at like a heavier weight, was with him uh, physically or like a, like a barbell, like steel plate. Like he introduced me to a bodybuilding gym. Okay. Okay. And, which was awesome. I loved it because it was like these big, like there's pictures of like muscular women and stuff. I'm like, that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. Cause it, I've always had that in, in me, like to, to be more strong because I've always been physically strong. So I just, it was the body God gave me and I was going to go with it. And eventually he like showed me like these weights and, and everything. He would do like a run around. Hey, you know, you're, you're lifting more than me. You know, you shouldn't be lifting more than me. Kind of like I that. Should not be chuckling, but I'm picturing this in my mind and the insecurity that he probably had that, that you're so strong. I'm trying to think of what might be going on in his mind beside I'm she's stronger than me and I'm supposed to be stronger than her if we're basing it on society's ideas. Yeah. And there's the identity crisis. The second um, head of the identity crisis for Larney. Well, I want to be this strong physical woman with muscles and everything. He doesn't want me to be like that. So what do I do? I try to make myself as small as possible to be the one that he likes. When you say make yourself as small as possible, what does that mean? What did you do? So I would lift the lower weights. 
I would try to get myself as slender as possible. So I was watching what I was eating. I was doing the whole, you know, hours and hours of cardio to be smaller. Tiny. Yeah. To thin out, to be thin. thin Yes. Because that's kind of what he wanted. He didn't say that straight out that he wanted me to be like this small girl, but to be compared to like maybe his friends, girlfriends who are smaller, I didn't fit that mold. Did he actually do that and compare you? No, but you could, I, I can see it. Tell us what, what to you that looked like. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Did he actually do that and compare you? No, but you could, I, I can see it. Tell us what, what to you that looked like. So he, okay, here's one thing. He used to go, yeah, I, I almost asked out his wife. He was his then wife. I mean, it was like, they were like, back in the day, they were like just dating, but I was going to ask her out a long time ago. And I wish I would have like those kinds of oh, comments. That hurts. Yeah. So those kinds of comments. So it's like, okay, you know, that's cool. And then he, it, those kinds of little comments. Were so like, it just got worse. You've got this identity crisis. You want, you you found that you enjoy the feeling of lifting weights. And now, so you go against that gut instinct of yours. And on, in a, additionally, I don't think belittled is the right word, but you're getting these little digs here and there. These, these jabs of, okay, I want to explode to this, but uh, in my heart, you know, I wasn't confident enough to, I wasn't confident enough to be myself. Yeah. And so it was, it was again, that depressive state of why am I with this guy? I'm only with this guy because I feel, is it because I'm lonely? You know? And so I had to find myself. Yeah. So you're working out though, and that's supposed to be giving you good endorphins and all this great stuff, but you were still sad. Yes. It's interesting how, how fitness could be a double-edged sword. That's supposed to give you the happy endorphins running, but then you have the judgment from other people who want to tear you down. Right. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah. It's such a double-edged sword because it's like, I, I've always wanted to be this fitness person, but with this gentleman, I, I felt like I should be this little bitty person. Yeah. So my soul didn't match my my want. Yeah. And are you suicidal again? Are you getting suicidal? That's I, mean, where you... I was like, that's where I was like feeling that suicidal feeling again. And it was like that pulling of my, my, my senses, my heart, like, because I didn't know who I was. Right. You know, so it, how did you figure, how did you start figuring that out? How did you start climbing out of this crevice, if you will? So after that relationship ended, I told myself, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to find my confidence. I'm going to be confident. And I went back to school. I was trying different things. And I was starting to figure out the things that I like to do and that I wanted to do. And, you know, now that I'm older, it was easier to make the decisions that I wanted to do. And I, I, I got involved in like different sports and I, I, went to school for athletic training. It was the compromise between my parents wanting to be going to nursing school, but I got to be in athletics. So it was a great compromise and it was good. 
It was, it was a really good compromise because I was able to do the hands-on stuff that I wanted. I was around athletes and I felt like an athlete myself because I was like, yay, you know, athletes too. And it was, it was a great time in my life to, to be able to be part of that. And I really hold, I like hold athletics, like so deep in my heart because that's what I wanted to be and be around. But the second coming of the depressed state. So there's (laughs) another one. Oh, yes. Okay. 30s. I think that's important to point out though, that, that this, sometimes you may have, have it when you're younger and then it might have, something might trigger it. And then again, it might get triggered. And then unfortunately, yes, might again, it might get triggered. Yes. But this time, this was like the last time Mm -hmm. you have come into my, and come back into my life. And again, let's drop another relationship in there. Oh dear. (laughs) And the pattern for me was I was really looking for love outside of myself. Explain that. So, okay. So this gentleman I met, he came again at the right time. I had moved away and um, I didn't have my support group from home. And so I was meeting new people. And again, it was like going back to fighting for my name back in the day. Mm. Hi, I'm Larnie. And, you know, hi, I'm Larnie. What's your name? what is your name? Like that. So again, that like, oh my gosh, I don't know anybody and I don't want to be bullied and I don't know anybody. I don't have the support system. So it was like, oh shoot. Okay. All right. So this bandaid, I caught, it was like that bandaid of um, looking for love and acceptance elsewhere because from inside I was lonely. I was scared. I didn't know anybody. I wasn't sure if I, I didn't have my sister around. I wasn't sure if I was going to meet anybody. And I was in my thirties and I was, I was afraid. Okay. So you're afraid. And I'm also thinking, you're thinking you just need someone in your life. I mean, am I on the right track there? Yeah, that's exactly. It's part of that loneliness that I had that loneliness that I just didn't have like a connection with anybody. Cause I didn't know anybody. And I couldn't call somebody and be like, Hey, let's go and have a beer or whatever. It was like, there was nobody I could call. Cause there was nobody I knew. And you still kind of needed someone to say to you, you're okay. You're good <laughs> enough. You're this, you're that mm-hmm. to validate who you were. Yeah. And this person just came in my life at the right time. And he was the bandaid. It was okay. my bandaid. He, me being that lonely person and really wanting to love somebody, he came at the right time and plugged that hole. He just like, let's just cover this up a little bit. When really inside, I was still like thinking that, ah, I really want somebody to love me and blah, blah, blah. And be, I was alone. And um, he, he was the distraction in my life at that time. And like, for me, I thought we were in a relationship when really we weren't. And it was that manipulative aspect of the relationship that, that threw that bandaid on because mm-hmm. I thought he, I thought I would love, I thought I loved him, but really it, it was just because I was alone and lonely. How did, so how did you, when did you figure that out? So when I came back, after, after I came back here into the Chicagoland area, I was still like wanting to be with this gentleman, even though we didn't live in the same state. And I was like, I just, I can't be without you. Like I was in my mind. I was like, I can't be without this man because it's, he was the only one that loved me. I want to be with him. I, I will do whatever I need to do to be with him. And that's that conformity part of me that, that mm-hmm. wants to please 
somebody else and make myself something I didn't want to be. Yeah. It took a year of therapy. Yeah. For me to get over it. It was the best year of therapy in my life ever. Like honestly, if my therapist was still, I think she retired shortly after, but if she was still around, I would still go to her just to talk to her. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like you did a lot of processing with the therapist then. Yes. Yeah. And it was, that's what I learned. My pattern of myself was to make myself conform to any relationship, any person, any group, because I didn't know my identity because I didn't know who I was. And that stems from back in the day when I was younger. Yeah. So then how did you, okay. So you're in this therapist. Is it during that year that you're starting to recognize who you want to be? It was like right after pretty much like the therapy sessions. And this was in my like late thirties, like 37, okay. 38, um, where I told myself, I was like, you know what? No, this is not how I want to be because I started to know after therapy, I started to know more about myself. Right. I started realizing that how important I was. I started to realize my value, but I, the way I did that was through therapy, but I had to face all that stuff from the background. I had to face the, I took that inner inventory of myself of like, what is holding me back? Is it cultural? Is it, you know, growing up the way I, the way people expected me to, and I didn't, do I feel guilty about that? I had to really do like a lot of inner soul searching to find out that really I was living for somebody else. I was living for my parents. I was living for these men. I was living for, you know, this really uh, for relationships that really didn't um, support me or who I wanted to be. And it took a long time. And it it was it. I am so glad that I did all that for myself, because now where I'm at, honestly, I'm the happiest I've ever been. That's fantastic. So you're this journey though. So it just took, it sounds like it wasn't fast. It took a year of therapy. And then even after that, you found yourself making these new choices more in line with who you wanted to be correct, and not who you didn't want to be. Correct. I, I made choices with athletics, like sports I wanted to do. I made, it was the, the best part about therapy. It let me it gave me tools to understand, okay, is this, is this person going to have my best interest or is this person going to have my best interest that affects them in their way? Mm. It was almost like I had to be a little bit more selfish with myself and my time and my heart, because if I were, I, I kept, I let everybody in. I was like, yeah, you know, and that's where like, it was, it, I was letting the wrong people in. I was, I was not letting the right people in um, because I wanted approval. Cause I wanted, I wanted like a lot of people to like me and I wanted all, and it was, it, it that didn't work. So I'm wondering, right. And I'm wondering because approval was so important to you, if it's, if that, when you were choosing those people to let into your life, that you were inadvertently choosing the ones that weren't going to give you what you needed. That is correct. That is exactly what it is because I just wanted people around me. Didn't matter who it was, but it wasn't the right people. I think that's really interesting because I hadn't really thought of that as something 
even I would do right. But I think I have done it. And it takes, for me, it like really took a lot of facing, facing those bad things, facing those things that were questionable in my life, things that I've done that were questionable. Um, But also it it took a lot of ownership. I had to own up to those. And um, that's why I'm able to talk about it now because it's, it's the ownership part. Like it's, it's once I owned who I was, once I owned the things that I, that I felt brought me joy, it changed my life. And that's why I say I'm like the happiest that I am been in, in a long time, in years and years and years since then, since therapy times, because I've owned, I've taken ownership of my life now. And the days of wanting to lift heavy, I do that now, even though it took since it was like 1999 that that gentleman told me that 2019 was the first time I, I told myself I'm going to compete as an athlete because I've always wanted to be considered an athlete. 2019, I was like, I'm going to compete in something. Oh, you know what? I'm going to compete in powerlifting. March, 2019, I picked up a barbell. My first competition was in November, 2019. And it was amazing. Wow. And that was where I, I felt myself. Right. So how did you, when you say own it, I don't think you mean lip service to say I own who I am. I think you mean action. Am I on the right track there? When, when, so it's taking who you want to be and, or, and even maybe some of that past and saying, yep, this happened to me. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It was for a long time, you you know, well, for me, it was like, I suppress a lot of stuff because I was embarrassed. Right. You know, I was like, ah, you know, I don't want people to think bad of me or whatever. And if somebody would think bad of me, let them, that's your, that's your business, not mine. I used to tell myself in the beginning, like, you know what? It's not my, if you don't like me, you don't like me. I can't make you like me. That's your business. Yeah, I'm going to move on with, I'm going to move on with my life and do whatever. So you can do whatever you want with your life. We don't have to, we can be cordial when you see each other, but you're not coming into my space. You're not, right. you're not going to take my energy. Yeah. So I, I started like understanding that more my, about myself. And that's part of that ownership. Like you're not, it, it's like, I'm me, you're you. There's a lot of things that I may not like about you. That's my business and vice versa. That's your business. I only have one life and I'm going to live it the way I want to. I'm going to build it the way I want to see it. So well, that's true to your, it sounds like you're going to build it true to who you are exactly. and not to who you think you should be. Exactly. You know, like not having someone, not having like a female example of like female and strength from back in the day. That's why I'm building who I am now. So the next generation can maybe see me as an example. Right. Okay. So you got into powerlifting. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us, I mean, it sounds like you've, you kind of, let's see, I don't want to say that. I, well, it seems like you found a tremendous amount of strength in powerlifting and not just physical. Correct. Yes. It's, it's, I talked to my coach, like when I first met my coach, um, we talked about like women's and women's strength sports and stuff. Cause he's a, he's a powerlifter, but also a strongman competitor. And we talked about like how women are afraid of their own strength 
and not just like inside I'm like not just physically but like here in their head and it got me just thinking about myself and I'm like I'm I know I'm physically strong it's my outlet of therapy to to do this but what I've learned so much from that like the beginning of 2019 to like November 2019 within that span of time like the lessons powerlifting has taught me to build my confidence more to be more comfortable with myself to embrace the strength that I have been given to embrace the strength that I can create in myself that's the joy that I find in myself you'd think it'd be like weird but like that's what it is but it's also helped me like challenge myself like to apply for a job that I know I wasn't going to get but I'm going to apply for it anyway right you know and I feel like a lot of women just feel you know we overanalyze everything that's just like some of us who we just over overanalyze mm-hmm. and we, we like talk ourselves out of our capability yeah I can relate to that I resonate with that <laughs> talk or no we no I shouldn't no it's like just what what if you do apply and you do get it now what yeah shoot okay you got it great run with it what if you don't get it okay great you didn't get it that's fine learn how you can get it right you know and those are those are the lessons that like powerlifting has taught me like I may not have been able to lift 400 in the gym 400 uh, pounds yeah like during training it's 400 you know like my goal was to lift 400 in my next competition okay I didn't get it in the gym and it crushed me it wait, meant so, crushed me. Wait, hold on. So from March 2019 to November, your goal was was 400 or uh, this was a new goal? So this was the new goal just recently. Okay. So my first, my first competition, I wanted to do, I think like over 300 as my deadlift. I don't know okay. if you have like a, a, a powerlifting competition, but I wanted a deadlift over 300. That was my goal. And I hit it. So the deadlift if, if I'm thinking of the right thing, the bars on the ground yeah. and you start in a squatted position and you bring the barbell up and you push it. No, the deadlift is just picking up the bar from the ground up to like your mid thigh. Okay. Okay. So, you know, it looks simple enough. Right. Right. Um, so like that, my first goal, 300 pounds. My second goal, this most current competition, I was like, you know what? I really, really want to do 400 plus. I really do. And in the gym, like during training, some of the days were really hard and that's because like my mind wasn't in it. I was going through some like employment things and everything. So it really matters where you are mentally, like most, like all sports you have to learning nowadays, right? That there's this huge mental thing that happens. Correct. So this past competition, it was just, it was November of 2020 and my, I told my, my coach is like, Hey, do you want to know your numbers that you're going to do? It's like, Nope, because I need to focus and my mind will attach with my heart, which means I can, I can like bring it out into physical form. So I get to my deadlift and it's my last attempt because you get three attempts. Like it was my last deadlift attempt and I did it. Whatever the weight was, I didn't know what it was. I did it. And my coach goes, you know what you just pulled, right? I said, what? He's like, 402. Oh my gosh. Did you, what did that feel like? I was like, what? So I was like, that was my goal. And, and he's like, you know what? 
and you had more in you. And that's what like powerlifting for me, like we're so quick to, to talk ourselves out of our capability. And then when you do it, you're like, oh, I guess there is more in me. And that's like really like what I want to encompass in like the women around me and people in general, that there's so much more in you that like you really haven't tapped into yet. Right. And it takes a while to get to there. But once you kind of like take your inner inventory and do all that stuff and like, you know, like your mind is here, your heart is here. And then once they, they lock like that, oh my gosh, the things that you can do. Right. Okay. So with that said, three things, three things you want the audience to think about or three tools you want to give them or a mixture of both that will help them maintain hope in the midst of a struggle. Oh, sure. So one thing I, it's M M O R E moments of reflection every day. And that just means take the time every day to plug out what are the positive things that happened to you today? Because it's so easy to go to the negative. Oh, this happened. But like, do the work to find your positive moments. And then live in that moment. Like, like soak in that moment. Because A, it, w- it may never happen again. Or it's something that there's either a big old lesson in it. And you learn from it. Yeah. So take those moments of reflection every day. Take like a minute, you know, just to kind of like sit and, and just be like, yeah. That was, that was good. To, that was good today. That was good yeah. today. And I learned that a little bit from powerlifting too. You know, like every day is not going to be a good day when you're training. But what was good about training? I did this other exercise. Great. Yeah. So like those things that take those moments of reflection every day, and also understand that there is greatness inside of you, and you have to outperform and outgrow any standards that were set upon you. That's how I, that's how I did it. That's how I found my greatness. I had to outperform and outgrow this box that people were trying to put me in. And I'm sorry, they just couldn't. They did this, right? (laughs) They tried, but it, it just didn't work that way. And know what gives you joy. You know, like know what gives you joy because it's why, why live in no joy? like live in the joy that you have. And that's why I feel like I'm like the happiest in my life now, because I'm doing things purposefully that bring me joy. You know, like, I don't want to do anything that makes me feel miserable. You know, there's already enough of that to choose from. I mean, really looking for that joy and finding that joy is the hardest part. Yeah. So I am so, those are amazing. I'm so grateful that you found your strength, that you found the values of who you are and that you're living to those standards and that you're willing to share that because I think that's the purpose of this podcast is to share hope and to say, you know what? Yes, you might be there right now. And guess what? It's possible. All I need to know is it's possible. So thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. We really enjoyed talking to Larnie about how she learned to find her voice and power 
We especially liked when she explained that for her, inner power and outer power grew at the same time. To unite with other damaged people, connect with us on TikTok. Look for damaged parents. We'll be here next week, still relatively damaged. See you then.